reached our cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts, and a look at Heartland news from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today. We have a great show lined up for you today after a brief hiatus last week to enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday. If you didn't get a chance to listen to our Thanksgiving special, scroll on back through the latest episodes. It was a ton of fun catching up with the whole crew and talking about the many things that we are thankful for from this last year. And, as fitting, chatting up our favorite dishes and traditions. For now, though, let's start the show. The Execution of Kevin Johnson Kevin Johnson convicted of ambushing and killing a St. Louis area police officer he blamed in the death of his younger brother was executed Tuesday night. Johnson, who was 37, died by lethal injection at the state prison in Bonterre. It was the state's second execution this year and the 17th nationally, with two more executions scheduled in Missouri for the first few weeks of 2023. Johnson's attorneys didn't deny that he killed Officer William McKenty in 2005, but contended that he was sentenced to death in part because he's black. But courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court and Republican Governor Mike Parson, declined to stop the execution. Johnson himself declined to make a final statement before the lethal drug was administered. In a first for modern executions in Missouri, Johnson was not in the execution room alone. His spiritual advisor, the Reverend Daryl Gray, sat at his side. The men spoke softly until the drug was administered. Gray read from the Bible as Johnson shut his eyes. Within seconds, all movement ceased. Gray, a leading St. Louis racial injustice activist, continued reading from the Bible or praying while patting Johnson's shoulder. Gray says, We read scripture and had a word of prayer. He himself apologized again. He apologized to the victim's family. He apologized to his family. He said he was looking forward to seeing his baby brother. And he said he was ready. McKinty was a 20-year veteran of the police force in Kirkwood, a St. Louis suburb. He was a husband and father of three, and was among the officers sent to Johnson's home on July 5, 2005, to serve a warrant for his arrest. Johnson was on probation, and police believed that he had violated probation. Johnson saw officers arrive and awoke his 12-year-old brother, Joseph Bam Bam Long, who ran to the house next door. Once there, the boy who suffered from a congenital heart defect collapsed and began having a seizure. Johnson testified at trial that McKenty had kept his mother from entering the house to aid his brother, who died a short time later at a hospital. So, later that evening, when McKenty returned to the neighborhood to check on an unrelated report of fireworks being shot off, Johnson shot him through the open passenger side window, striking the officer's leg, head, and torso. The tragic history surrounding this case has now only been compounded in my eyes. The needless death of a 12-year-old boy, which led to a revenge-fueled murder of an officer by Johnson, and now the death of Johnson himself. Personally, I don't like the death penalty. It has been proven to not be a deterrent, and it is all too often met out randomly and without equality. Take this very case. A special prosecutor filed a motion earlier this month to vacate the death sentence, stating that race played a decisive factor in the death sentence for Johnson. Certainly not an equal sentence. There are more examples I could use, but on a personal level, I attended our first Advent service this week at church. My pastor had a sermon highlighting Genesis, specifically the moment in my religion's history where where Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He preached on man's often faulty ability to discern right and wrong despite the wisdom, quote-unquote, we obtain from the fruit of the tree. 
how we all tell ourselves that we are rational beings. So of course we can make the big decisions, yeah? To hell with the guy across the street with differing political views, morals, etc., etc. Now, I sat in the pew thinking of all my fellow Christians who tend to line up with either supporting the death penalty or being apathetic of it. And it wasn't hard to contemplate the hypocrisy of it all. I guess the question begs, were the scales balanced? when Johnson killed Officer McKenty in a 19-year-old's fit of blind rage over the death of his younger brother? Of course not. But if you believe killing Kevin Johnson somehow balances the scales of justice and doesn't instead simply perpetuate a cycle of revenge, I'd have a hard time taking you seriously. A crowded Wisconsin Supreme Court race is a recipe for chaos. Fresh off the spotlight of presiding over the Waukesha Christmas Parade trial, Judge Jennifer Darrow jumped into the Wisconsin Supreme Court race Wednesday. Darrow joins three other candidates in the nonpartisan race for an open seat on the court, including fellow conservative former state Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly and two liberal candidates, Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasewicz and Dane County Judge Everett Mitchell. The top two vote-getters in the February primary will advance to the general election. This campaign just got a whole of a heck lot more interesting, and a whole heck of a lot less predictable, says University of Wisconsin lacrosse political analyst Anthony Shagowski. We could have a primary election where two liberal justices emerge as the top two. We could have a primary election where two conservative justices emerge as the top two. And from the candidates themselves, Protosewitz states, This is what I want voters to know. You want common sense. You want somebody who follows the law. You want somebody who's going to protect you. And that is what I'm going to do. Protect you. Community safety? Huge. Follow the law? Huge. Not beholden to anyone. Judge Kelly points to his experience on the state's highest court. I'm the only one who's been there who's demonstrated what it means to be a constitutional judge, he says, to uphold the rule of law, prevent activism and legislation from the bench. Darrow cites her 11 years on the bench and experience as a trial lawyer. I've been put to the test as a trial judge in a way that separates me from the others, and I have experiences to hit the ground running on the state's highest court. And Mitchell states, justice is not what you say, it's what you do. And my commitment to justice has been about working with men and women in our community to protect our community by bringing people together. A judge need not be separate from the community. You can be involved in the community and work to bring people together. This race could help shape the balance of the court. It could also see the most spending of any Wisconsin court race ever. When asked how he expects the highly competitive primary to play out, now that a prominent fourth candidate has joined the field, Shagowski replied, It's a recipe for chaos. We are experiencing a campaign that just got injected with a lot of unpredictability. Andrew Bailey, general counsel to Missouri's governor, named new attorney general. When Missouri Republican Governor Mike Parson appointed his general counsel, Andrew Bailey, as the state's next attorney general last week, the 41-year-old lawyer gave little indication of what he plans to do in the office. Standing in front of reporters and TV cameras in Jefferson City, Bailey said broadly that it would take some time to review the state's ongoing cases before he made a decision on the direction his office will take. He also touted the work of his predecessors, Senator-elect Eric Schmidt and Senator Josh Hawley. So... Not off to the greatest of starts. Soon after, though, when speaking to the Kansas City Star, Bailey took a more aggressive stance. When asked whether he would continue to deploy the office to take on the federal government like Schmidt, who largely built his reputation through a barrage of often faulty legal challenges as attorney general, Bailey's response was problematic, stating, quote, 
as Missouri's attorney general, I am going to fight for the people of this state to be free from pernicious federal overreach. Now, the office of attorney general Missouri has largely been essentially a campaign office in recent years. Both Josh Hawley and Eric Schmidt used and abused the powers of their office for their gain, with little regard for the actual function of the office. Republican state lawmakers seem at ease, though, with Parsons' appointment, touting Bailey's work in the governor's office and his knowledge of the legal system. They view Bailey as someone who will approach the position with integrity. Senate President Pro Temp Caleb Rowden, a Columbia Republican, says, I think most people think he's one of the smartest guys in the building. And State Senator Mike Sirpio, a Lee Summits Republican, said he expects Bailey to be a mix of Schmidt and previous attorneys general. He said much of Schmidt's focus as attorney general was centered around pushing back on COVID-19 mandates, which probably won't be at the forefront of Bailey's tenure. Instead, however, he suggests a possible focus on critical race theory. (sighs) Democrats hope Bailey will be pragmatic. They have frequently criticized Schmidt and Hawley for using the attorney's general office to launch headline-grabbing lawsuits to appeal to the Republican base and build their political brands. They remain cautiously hopeful that Bailey will take a more pragmatic approach to the office than his predecessors. I'm hoping and trying to keep an open mind that he'll bring some integrity back to that office, says House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid, a Springfield Democrat who last week called on Bailey to dismiss Schmidt's ongoing lawsuits. There is some baggage, though. One regular and accurate criticism of Bailey during his time in Parsons' office was his role in helping draft talking points that the governor used to argue that St. Louis Post-Dispatch journalist Josh Renaud should be prosecuted for uncovering a security flaw on the Missouri Department of Elementary and Secondary Education's website. He also had a role in the Second Amendment Preservation Act and the trigger law that went into effect surrounding abortion, the first being unconstitutional and both suffering from vague language. The question remains, though, will Bailey behave like his predecessors and use the office to run for higher office? Schmidt was elected to the U.S. Senate just four years after Parson appointed him as attorney general. Hawley, his immediate predecessor, began his successful Senate campaign less than a year after being sworn into the office. Before them, attorneys general John Danforth, John Ashcroft, and Jay Nixon all used their office as a pathway to higher office. Asked whether he planned to seek higher office, Bailey said he is focused on being the kind of attorney general that Missourians deserve, and that is my motivation. Still, some Democrats worry that Bailey may use his office and lawsuits to promote partisan politics, if he has future political plans. I think my big question is, does he just want to stay attorney general? In which case, I'm actually pretty optimistic that he'll focus on doing the job, says State Representative Peter Meredith, a St. Louis Democrat. If instead, like Hawley and Eric Schmidt, he starts looking to climb the ladder, I worry he may jump on the bandwagon of using the office for politics. But I'm hopeful. I am cautiously optimistic. I'm not sure I share that optimism, Peter. Hey there, folks. I hope you're enjoying the show. I want to remind you that we are a 100% listener-supported family of podcasts, all under the umbrella of the Heartland Pod. You can catch our flagship show, The Heartland Pod, on Mondays every week with Adam Summer, where he delivers an opening statement before being joined by Sean Diller and Rachel Parker for Talking Politics. You can also join a variety of our hosts on most Tuesdays and Thursdays for Let's Have a Chat, featuring interviews with folks of interest from around the Midwest. On Wednesday, the focus shifts to a rotating cast of special reports, like The Delta, with Nicholas and Christina Linke, and High Country, Sean Diller's Western Political Updates. 
Learn more at heartlandpod.com. And don't forget, for full access to the last call episodes and the Heartland News blog, sign up on Patreon as a podhead today. And now, the lightning round. Lightning round. Rail strike likely averted as labor bill heads to Senate. A railroad worker strike likely won't happen now that Congress has stepped in, but a key sticking point in the standoff, whether more than 100,000 freight rail workers will get any paid sick leave, is still an open question. On Wednesday, the House voted 290 to 137 to force railroad workers to agree to a labor deal reached back in September at the White House. And now that bill is headed to the Senate, where there appears to be bipartisan support. The House also voted... 221 to 207, to give rail workers seven days of paid sick leave in a separate bill. Typically, the White House and Congress don't get involved in labor disputes, aside from making public statements. But the railroad and airline industries are different, covered by a federal labor law that allows for intervention. The Biden administration finds itself in a tough position. The desire to continue to be pro-worker in an era where workers are demanding better treatment runs hard against a rail strike that would be catastrophic to the economy, especially amidst an already strained economy post-COVID. Biden states the Senate must now act urgently. Without action this week, disruptions to our auto supply chains, our ability to move food to tables, and our ability to remove hazardous waste from gas line refineries will begin. Many are touting that the deal is still a big win for rail workers, but others feel betrayed that sick leave has been left off the table for now. I will say, it cannot be overstated, though, that without action by the Biden administration in Congress, a strike would have almost certainly happened, and that affects everyone. Coal plants in Missouri are causing toxic groundwater pollution. A new report found nearly all Missouri coal plants are releasing toxins into local groundwater. The report from two nonprofits, the Environmental Integrity Project and Earth Justice, showed improper storage of waste material from coal fired power plants is causing unsafe levels of groundwater contamination at 91% of U.S. coal plants. The EPA has established that ash disposal sites need to have a plastic liner and a layer of compacted soil to prevent groundwater contamination, but the requirement to retrofit ash disposal sites to correct groundwater contamination currently apply only to ash dumps active when the coal ash rule went into effect in 2015. Older sites were allowed to be closed without changing the soil underneath or adding a plastic barrier. Ohio Republicans move to restrict constitutional amendments. Ohio Republicans have introduced House Joint Resolution 6, a proposal that would make it more difficult for voters to amend the Ohio Constitution. Currently, proposed amendments only need to earn 50% of the vote to go into effect. Under H.J.R. 6, amendments would need to earn 60% of the vote to be enacted. The proposal is supported by Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who argues that the changes needed to prevent special interests from, quote, hijacking the amendment process. This resolution is part of a trend of Republican-controlled states attempting to enact measures to make the ballot initiative process more difficult. Earlier this year, South Dakota Republicans attempted to raise the threshold to approve amendments in order to prevent a successful effort to expand Medicaid through the ballot. If Ohio adopts a similar rule, the future measures protecting abortion rights or targeting partisan gerrymandering would become more difficult for voters to approve. Both houses of the Ohio legislature need to approve HJR 6 with a three-fifths majority. If so, the proposal would go to the voters for approval, likely during a low turnout 2023 primary election. 
Arizona is set for legal battles after a county refuses to certify midterm results. After officials in a rural Arizona county refused to certify election results by a legally mandated deadline, they now face two lawsuits, likely court intervention to force their vote and potential criminal penalties. The rare, likely illegal move by the officials sets up quick court battles as state officials race to certify the election statewide, a process set for the 5th of December. Candidates and outside parties wishing to sue over election results await these final results before the court cases can commence. Two statewide races will require recounts, which cannot start until the statewide certification. Two Republican county supervisors in Cochise County voted to delay the certification until Friday, though the deadline for the Arizona counties to certify the results was the 28th of November. They cited already answered questions over tabulation machines when pushing off the vote. The third supervisor, a Democrat, wanted to certify the results. It's astounding that Cochise County officials failed to certify the election results, says Alex Gulata, the all-voting-as-local Arizona state director. The refusal to certify the results is directly tied to those who would rather sow distrust in our electoral process than protect our democracy and ensure that all votes are counted. And lastly, folks, Vanity Fair gives us a funny, not funny little rundown of why Georgians should categorically not vote for Herschel Walker. Since announcing his candidacy for the United States Senate in August of 2021, Herschel Walker has given the people of Georgia an extremely long list of reasons to cast their ballot for his opponent, Raphael Warnock. These reasons include, but are in no way limited to, being so staunchly anti-abortion that he wants the medical procedure outlawed without exceptions for rape, incest, or the life of the mother, allegedly pressuring at least two women he'd impregnated to undergo abortions, demonizing trans people, not believing in evolution, admitting he nearly killed his wife, and having a protective order taken out against him for threatening to do so, seemingly exhibiting a brain condition caused by repeated blows to the head, possibly from his time playing football. Being, in the words of his own campaign staff, a pathological liar who lies like he's breathing. Lying about owning businesses that do not actually exist. Lying about graduating in the top 1% of his college classes when he did not actually graduate from college. Being endorsed by the worst president in modern history. Spending election night talking about horse shit. Dedicating a large chunk of a recent speech to a tangent about why he wants to be a werewolf as opposed to a vampire. And now... With his runoff set for next week, they actually have another reason. That Walker, who again is running to represent Georgia, does not actually live in Georgia. Yes, one week after it emerged that Walker is receiving Texas state tax benefits on a home in Dallas listed as his principal residence, a new review of campaign speeches shows him telling people as late as January that he was living in the Lone Star State. <laughs> Well, that's all the time we have this week, folks. I want to thank you for joining us. If you feel you have a story that I should look into and possibly highlight on the show, please tweet me throughout the week at Kev in Midmo or the pod's parent account at the Heartland Pod. This week's episode featured reporting and information from Vanity Fair, The Guardian, Democracy Docket, KTTN News, Axios, the Kansas City Star, ABC, and the Associated Press. Thanks for listening. Flyover View is a production of MidMap Media, LLC. Learn more at www.heartlandpod.com or at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. See you all next week.